Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Thursday, May 19th, 2022. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Joey Jackson, a renowned criminal defense attorney and legal analyst who you may have seen on CNN and HLN amongst many other outlets. Joey, welcome. It is great to be with you, fine sir. How you doing? I'm doing very good. Uh, a lot to talk about this week. Uh, we're, we're still checking in on the uh, Depp v. Heard case, a lot of developments in that. But before we jump in, Joey, if you could take a little bit of time to tell us about your background and how you got your start. All right, Joshua. So my background, um, in a minute or less, I was born and raised on the river. No, I was born and raised <laughs> in the Bronx, uh, and I never, looking, growing up, I wasn't one of these people who, when I was, you know, six months old, one year old, 11 years old, said I wanted to be a lawyer. I actually uh, ended up going to college, and I met a person who happened to uh, become my mentor. He was a lawyer. I worked at his firm. He was uh, like a second father to me. I was over his you know, house for dinner with his family and his children, and I sort of gravitated towards law, graduated from college, and then I ended up getting my master's in public administration because I wanted to go into politics, and I said, you know what? let me not and then i sort of uh pivoted to to law at that time and uh you know the rest is history i started as a prosecutor in manhattan and then i left the prosecutor's office and have been defending the rights joshua of the falsely accused ever since. i hear you <laughs> and you have your own practice now right I do. I do. You know, I worked uh, as a prosecutor for a few years and then I was doing criminal defense and worked for a couple of uh, law firms. Um, and then I ultimately went out on my own a few years ago. I secured a, a number of uh, union contracts and we're just happy and pleased to have a nice operation in Midtown. Uh, you know, not a big operation. There's about 13 uh, 13 members on the staff, everybody working hard, six lawyers in total, and uh, we're doing some good work and hopefully we'll get to expand it even further. Fantastic. Um, well, with your background, I know that listeners are going to be uh, really interested to hear your thoughts on some of these cases. So we'll, we'll jump right in. 
first starting with a case that is starting to turn into a real uh, kind of international uh, problem here. We're talking about Brittany Griner, the WNBA star and two-time Olympic gold medalist, has been detained in Moscow now since February. She plays in a professional Russian league during the WNBA offseason. Griner was arrested after vape cartridges allegedly containing cannabis were found in her luggage. She's facing drug smuggling charges in Russia, which, get this, could carry a sentence of 10 years. Her pretrial detention has been extended by a month with no trial date yet set. And I know this kind of stuff will offend you knowing the American system, Joey. Uh, the U.S. Embassy has been denied requests to visit Griner three times in the last month, and the State Department claims to be working on her release, but no visible progress has been made. A State Department official said, we take our responsibility to assist U.S. citizens seriously, and we will continue to press for fair and transparent treatment for all U.S. citizens when they are subject to legal processes overseas. Okay, so she's obviously a pawn here in this Russia game that they're playing with us, dealing with the war in Ukraine. What do you, do you have any experience dealing with clients outside of the country? Like what really can be done for her? Yeah, so, you know, it's a difficult scenario. And the answer to the question is, you know, most of my clients are uh, local based, uh, you know, in New York and other parts of the country. Having said that, I think international, it presents greater challenges, Joshua. If these were regular times, I think that the path forward for her would, I don't wanna say smooth, you know, as a defense attorney, I know things are never quite as smooth as we might say they would be, but I think the path would be a little bit more clearer, a little bit more consistent, and certainly a little bit more predictable. But based upon the fact that we have a situation uh, which is, it's a disastrous situation. You have Russia having invaded, uh, you know, certainly a sovereign country in Ukraine. You have the United States clearly on board, as we should be with Ukraine and defending the interests, uh, you know, United States interests in that part of the, of the world. Uh, and based upon that, this discussion that we're having really becomes less of a legal discussion about due process, about constitutional rights and liberties, and more to what you said, Joshua, which is her being used as a pawn in this international tragedy, right? And so the yeah. bottom line here is notwithstanding anything that you and I could talk about, which in normal times we could, extradition treaties, whether or not you know we have good relations with different countries, embassies and consulates. This is really an issue that I think has become stuck in this whole issue of a war in Ukraine. And so I think the path forward could be very complicated. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's really, really beyond being a legal issue. Um, and, and just to explain, if you could, for listeners, how, you know, each country is allowed to make whatever laws they, they want. And, and if that if they have punishments that we may view as draconian, that doesn't mean that they're not that they're violating some sort of international treaty by enforcing those laws. Famously, Singapore has some very strict laws about, you know, littering and smoking and things like that, that you could be doing jail time for something that simple. Did, did, can you explain that to listeners that how, you know, it, it, it legally there there might not be a mechanism for by which we can stop them from doing what they're doing in Russia? Yeah, so Joshua, that's very well stated. And I think in explaining that, people can relate to the fact that, look, here at home, we have different uh, 50 different states and every state has their own laws as it relates yeah. to the death penalty, as it relates to gun control, as it relates to abortion rights, right? So you can only imagine if in the United States, we have each state that is sovereign and independent 
course, we have a strong federal government. Just look at that, right, and extend that to the world, right? Just as the yeah. president of the United States can't tell uh, the governor of Georgia, New York, or California what to do, certainly the president of the you know United States can't tell a foreign and sovereign jurisdiction what to do, even if they don't practice the religion we think is appropriate, that's their business. The politics we think that's appropriate, that's their business. The things that we hold near and dear in terms of values and beliefs and views, they differ. So every country can impose those rules that they deem to be in keeping with the values of that country, whether they're contrary to our values or not. And so add that to the mix of this complicated issue of a war. And boy, it just gets really depressing to think about. I wish there were a rule of norms. And in normal times, perhaps there are. But as you know, Joshua, these are not normal times. And so I'm just hoping for the best. Last point, we know the WNBA is involved. The NBA is involved. They certainly have been in contact with the White House, with our State Department. But it's just a very complex political issue, more so than it is a legal issue. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 really just entirely unfortunate for her, I think, timing-wise. Because if it weren't for the conflict taking place in Ukraine, I don't think, I think you're right. I think this might be something much easier solved between our two governments. But right now, there there's not anything easy about the relationships between our country and Russia. So we'll, we'll continue to watch this, but I hope things uh, make a turn here because it's, it's really sad to see her kind of, you know, receiving zero to none uh, due process for for something that in in the United States might be a very very simple uh, issue. Turning now to, to a totally different type of case, we're talking about the Ryan Duke trial. Ryan Duke is on trial in Georgia for the murder of Tara Grinstead at her Irwin County home in 2005. Grinstead, a history teacher and famously a pageant queen, went missing in Osceola, Georgia, in 2005. No arrests were made in this case for until 2017, so 12 years later, when Ryan Duke and Bo Dukes, no relation, were arrested. Ryan Duke confessed to the murder in 2017, reportedly giving hours of confession after a mere 90 seconds of interrogation. He said at the time that he had broken into Tara's house to steal and fatally struck the woman when he was startled by her. His defense now claims it was a false confession and that he was coerced while on drugs. A Georgia Bureau of Investigation officer claims that Duke gave details about the case that were not public, including the presence of a latex glove containing Ryan's DNA. Bo Dukes, on the other hand, was sentenced to 25 years for his role in the crime in 2019. A jury found him guilty of helping Ryan Duke remove the body and burn it in a pecan orchard. Ryan just took the stand in his defense with a different story of events, claiming that Bo Dukes had actually killed the woman and had enlisted him to help him hide the body. He said he didn't come forward with the information on Bo sooner because he feared uh, that his former classmate might do to him. Bo Dukes was called to the stand but invoked his Fifth Amendment and therefore gave no testimony. The defense rested their case on Wednesday, May 18th, with Ryan's fate in the jury's hands right now. All right, a lot going on here. But could you explain for, for, for listeners how a confession is, is, is not always a silver bullet for the prosecution? 
Yeah, that's so very well stated, Joshua. You know, when we think about confession, certainly everyone in layman's terms, that's when someone admits to what they did, right? They sit down with law enforcement and they give the indication of a full admission about what happened, when it happened, how it happened, their involvement with respect to the crime at issue. But it's not always that simple because what defense attorneys do, particularly good ones like Joshua, um, <laughs> what they'll do is they will and we will ultimately say, listen, it may have been coerced, right? Sometimes the police use different means in order to elicit information. Sometimes, for example, during the fact that you're being uh, interrogated, perhaps you're interrogated for a long period of time. Perhaps you're interrogated because you're on some drugs or other type substance, which is alleged here. Perhaps there are other conditions that don't make the confession as straightforward to someone simply fessing up. And so we know that when people give confessions and we do allege as defense attorneys that they're coerced, Worse, that becomes a question of fact for the jury. What do I mean? I mean that although you confessed, your attorneys can raise the specter of reasonable doubt as to the confession not being reliable, as to the confession not being appropriately taken by authorities. And in this case, we know that on the witness stand, his version of events differed with respect to what he told initially about what happened. And so I think it'll be a question of fact. Last point. And that is that even when people confess, you have to look and often us defense attorneys argue about other issues which may contradict the defendant themselves. Right. What other issues would lead to believe that the confession was false, that the confession is not really related to the evidence, that the confession cannot be trusted, that there are other circumstances showing it was someone other than my client. And so it's not that easy to come full circle. Right, Joshua, in terms of saying, oh, we got a confession. Nothing to see here. They're guilty. Close everybody's books. Let's all go home. It's a lot more complex than that. Absolutely. I, I will say my thoughts on this have changed a lot over the course of my career. When I was in the DA's office and you had a case with a confession, you you, you basically closed your file and say, OK, this this one's kind of wrapped up because you you do know how jurors perceive a confession. They, they, it, there's kind of this very myopic way of thinking about it that like, hey, Nobody's going to confess to something they didn't do. So if they said they did it, then I'm going to go ahead and believe that they they did it. And they, you know, don't need much more corroboration beyond that confession. Right. But it, it, statistically, it's amazing. And the science is coming out on this still. They're doing studies on false confessions are absolutely a thing. And like you pointed out, especially in situations where the... the um, the interrogation is so coercive and they can go on for hours and they can be feeding information to somebody and telling them that, hey, you're walking out of here. Just tell me what happened. And before you know it, especially when you're dealing with a person who might be young or not, you know, have their their the not not the most intelligent person you're dealing with, they might be thinking, OK, I'm going to believe this cop and go ahead and confess to it. Now, that all being said, we don't really see all of those elements in this case. If it is true that they only interrogated him for a few seconds and then he spoke for hours, that would be a problem for the defense, certainly. And also, I wanted to talk to you about this and get your your, your insights for listeners. Uh, the the There's the argument that this was not a false confession because the detectives and law enforcement had purposefully withheld evidence and therefore their argument being he knew things that no one else would have known unless they were actually involved in it. How do, how do you deal with that as a defense attorney and, and, and what, what is your response here and how does that kind of evidence work? 
So a, a couple of things. So it's very important, I think, right, Joshua, when you're talking about confessions and your law enforcement to say what you just said, which is a very compelling argument that, hey, how would you have known some of the things that you explained to me if it weren't you? We had that information. You did not. And so I think a way to rebut that, though, is we know. Right. Uh, or. Uh, I won't say no, but it has been experienced previously that police officers may not be in some certain circumstances that truthful. So is it fair to say, right? The reality is that they gave information that they would not have known. Did you, to your earlier point, Joshua, feed them that information in the course of the interrogation such that they would have known? Did you lead them down the path? Did you suggest evidence and information that they wouldn't have known, but for you telling them and putting it out? there such that they would know and you as an officer conveniently adopting it as something not that came out of your mouth and implying that but that came out of their mouth and asserting that and so i think there are ways to twist and turn that and so ultimately at the end of the day it becomes a question of fact to the jury as to whether it was coerced or otherwise or whether the defendant at the time was of right mind or was under some kind of substance last point and that's this We know that in confession cases, what you do is you condition your jury. What do I mean? At the outset of the case, you talk to the jurors before they're impaneled and before you agree to have them. Hey, you recognize that there are instances where there could be someone who makes confession, but it's not true. Do you understand that, jurors? Well, well, what do you mean? I mean, there are instances, for example, where things could be suggested, right? And people could adopt those suggestions as if they were fact. And there are instances where they just want to a defendant get out of the room. And there are instances where police say it's going to be okay. So, for example, you'd agree with me, jurors, that just because it's a confession, there's no basis or need, right, as you mentioned, Joshua, to close your file for all of us to go home. Could you agree to me, with me, to listen to all the facts before you render a conclusion? Now, I said that in narrative form. Obviously, it's done a little bit differently and step by step by step in front of a jury and a listening. But you want to condition a jury before they're impaneled to say, hey, guys, I don't want you to be surprised when you hear my my guy confess to this. There's a lot more than meets the eye. So I think you can deal with that effectively as a defense attorney. How effective depends upon whether your guy walks home or is convicted. So well put. And and so much of these cases are really won and lost in jury selection, right? And and how you you just laid out that 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 script of how you would walk it through each of these jurors to make sure that the people, the twelve people sitting there. Uh, are folks that are gonna are gonna are gonna be able to uh, digest that argument when you make it in closing? Last last point on this question on this, what do you think about that strategy that the, with the defense in calling to the stand not exactly the co-defendant but the co-suspect Bo Dukes uh, to the stand and having him just inju- invoke the fifth in front of the jurors? I like that. And the reason I like that is because, you know, there's one thing and there was a lot of legal wrangling, as we know, with respect to whether that uh, now convicted felon would be able to testify or whether he would not. Or what's the point, Judge? He's, you know, he's only going to invoke the fifth. But I think for a jury to see that makes a big difference because this is a case where you have the two sides dukes and duke right who are telling convergent different stories and so it's important to get a criminal on the stand and beyond saying what their name is refuse to answer any questions and that's also i think a a critically important component that the jury can eyeball that they can make evaluations about they can wonder why would he be pleading the fifth maybe that guy's the guilty party and the guy sitting there who wears 
evaluating is not so guilty. So I always like for them to get the live, them being the jury, the live view of somebody saying, I plead the fifth on advice of counsel. I think it's a good move. Yeah, it's it's always such a dramatic moment too. It might it might not be all that legally significant. We understand reason many reasons why somebody might do that, but it's it's always that dramatic moment. Oh my God, he pled the fifth. That must mean dot dot dot. You know, I agree with you. Switching gears to the Chrisley knows best stars face a thirty million dollar uh, fraud trial taking place in Atlanta. The rea- reality star couple Todd and Julie Chrisley from Chrisley knows best are charged with bank fraud and tax evasion, facing 12 counts of federal wire fraud, tax evasion, and conspiracy. It is claimed that they faked income, pretending to be wealthier than they were, taking out bank loans in excess of $30 million. They allegedly forged documents to defraud banks before filing for bankruptcy and walking away with a reported $20 million owned. Owed, pardon me. The government claims they used the money to fund their lavish lifestyle and even prior to the television show. Todd Chrisley has claimed that it was his business partner that committed the fraud and that they were not aware of the crimes being committed in their name. The former employee was fired in 2012 after he reportedly found was found stealing from the company and the cu- couple alleges he retaliated by bringing phony documents to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We'll see how that turns out. It is further alleged that Todd and Julie hid over $6 million in earnings to avoid paying over $500,000 in taxes to the IRS. The couple claims that they were simply negligent and followed bad advice. All right. Uh, they've gone the route of trying to prove provide an alternate suspect. Is that their best chance in this case? What do you think defense-wise strategy? So here's the problem, right? You know this, Joshua. I know this. And just so that the viewers know this. In state prosecutions, generally you get arrested and then the government or the state prosecutors build their case. In federal prosecutions, generally they're long-term in nature and the federal government goes chapter and verse doing a lot of things, getting records and information and documents, sometimes wiretapping, having these long-term investigations. So by the time they arrest you, they already have significant evidence as to your guilt. Again, contrary to a state case, where they arrest you, then they build it. So that's really powerful. The other issue is that federal and white collar cases are generally paper cases. Well, what does that mean? It means there are documents, there are records, there are is specific information with respect to crimes that are committed. So to your question, you know, in terms of blaming somebody else. Now, in any case, you could say anything, but what does the actual evidence show? If you're alleging your business partner did it, the government does things like, well, if you submitted a document, what was the IP address associated with that document? It's not only about (laughs) whose signature was on it. Oh, he forged my signature. No. Where did the document emanate from? Did you have contact with the bank officials? How did you do that? Was it a phone? Was it a, a landline, a cell phone? Was it from your computer? There are specific records that could refute any evidence of information. Oh, it was my business partner. It was this guy. It was that guy. Okay, well, let's search. Sort of like the same thing, right, in terms of cell towers. I I was in New Mexico. Really? Your cell tower shows you were in New York at the time. So people could say whatever they want to say, but the evidence itself and the significant right work that the federal government does in bringing that to bear makes it a harder case. Not suggesting they're guilty. I'm just saying 
it's a tougher thing to say what you want to say and have it refuted by the government's evidence, which clearly will have it pinpointed to where those documents emanated from. I think that's going to be an important part of this case. Absolutely. I'm so I'm so happy the way that you laid that out, because that was one of the things that was most remarkable to me when I was leaving the DA's office and going into private uh, defense is that at the DA's office, and I'm not trying to say that they're not doing good work over there, but you know, you, you get a file lands on your desk. It's got a, an initial report, maybe a supplemental follow-up report, and that's about it. You're, you're looking at, you know, a 30 pages tops or something for, for a crime that may carry decades of, of exposure on someone. Then I get my first federal case having left the office on the defense side of things, and you realize that they have a dozen agents working on one case. They've been working on it for 18 months plus, and your first round of discovery is about 30,000 documents. What what would you like to do, sir? How When would you like to set this for trial? And it's just amazing the resources and 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 money and time they're able to put behind all of this because they have the the leisure of all of that, that I absolutely agree with you. This is not the kind of case where you, you try to turn it into a whodunit. They know. They, 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 and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm with you. I'm trying, trying to say anybody's guilty here, but I, I know with these federal cases that they just, they start from the outside and they circle on in. And you're, if you're left in the middle, uh, things are not going to go well for you. Um, how about the optics of this? Would, would you just feel it would play? Putting the federal stuff aside, just the idea of celebrities flaunting their wealth, how is that going to affect a jury in this type of a massive uh, fraud case? I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem in general where you have, for example, and whether, look, we like it or not, people in a free country, you could spend your money how you spend it. You can live how you live. You can drive what you drive, wear what you wear, bling what you bling, you know, watch jewelry. But I think to the common person, I think the common person may value someone who's a bit more humble, a little bit more understated and a lot less kind of, you know, just ostentatious about what they do. And it just has an effect. Right. And so I think that jurors can sympathize and relate to people who are a little less ostentatious about that. And then if you start getting into the factual information and you start looking at like fake credit reports, I mean, that's something that you really have to try to produce and put together, right? Credit karma is going to give you what it is. The credit report that you state is kind of a little different from credit karma (laughs) statement. And so I just think that all told, it's about the facts and the evidence. And even though that said, Joshua, we know know that the jury, even though it's about facts and we know you'll get jury instructions, it's not about sympathy, it's not about emotion, relatability matters. Who the defendant is matters. Whether you could connect with them matters. Whether you can sort of, you know, understand their position matters. And so I just think the showiness of it all, uh, you know, just doesn't bode well. Whether that's fair or unfair, that's just our reality. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't, I don't see how this I don't see any way how it could, couldn't possibly have an effect on the, those jurors. You yeah. know, of course, everybody would love to have thirty million dollars in the bank and live a life that you want. And you're sitting there as a juror. Uh, you know, who knows what you're making, but you, you you couldn't figure out a way to get off a of jury duty. And now you're watching these folks uh, live this lifestyle, and you and it's alleged to all be fraudulent. Can't I, I? I hear what you're saying about it's all about facts, but I can't see how it wouldn't play a a role in their minds. Turning to the big one, uh, Amber and Johnny. The trial we cannot escape continues in Fairfax, Virginia, with Amber Heard's testimony ending on Tuesday, May 17th. 
Johnny Depp's drug use has been a major sticking point for Heard's team, with her claiming he would become, quote-unquote, a monster. Depp's team uh, responded by highlighting the Heard's own drug use, including allegedly scheduling drug time <laughs> into their agenda for their wedding. A typed schedule for the wedding included, quote, dance party and drugs and music after the rehearsal dinner. Depp's team also impeached Heard with the 2009 assault at the Seattle airport, a port of Seattle spokesperson confirmed she was arrested on fourth degree domestic violence, but that the prosecutor's office never filed charges and a request to delete the record by Heard was granted. Finally, in an exchange that has made the rounds on the internet, Amber Heard was grilled about her claim that she, quote unquote, donated the entirety of her divorce settlement to charities, which was never fully distributed. Heard repeatedly stuck to the story that she, quote unquote, pledged the money and that was the same thing to her. Continuing today, Heard's defense has played multiple recorded depositions from witnesses who corroborate her claims of abuse in the fact that they uh, claim to have witnessed um, uh, bruises on her or injuries. And and most uh, kind of impactful of all, Heard's sister cited Depp's inappropriate, often drug-alcohol-induced behavior, adding that he struck her in an altercation with Heard, where the sister is the only eyewitness now to have claimed to have seen the actual physical abuse. All right. Did you, you watched some of Heard's cross-examination? A lot of people talking about it. A lot of people talking about the 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 Depp's attorney and how, what a great job uh, that she did. Did that move the needle at all for you? Has it changed your idea about Heard's initial testimony? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> Let me give you my view of this. Yeah, case. please. My view of this case is why are we here now? Just revert. <laughs> this has to be right. Any case, Joshua, can't be about. I love Edward Scissorhand, the Pirates of Caribbean and everything <laughs> to me. Johnny Depp is a star. He's the best there right. ever is and will be. Amber Heard, I hated Aquaman or woman or whatever she did. So, you know, when you speak to people and the reason I raised that issue, is so many people when I speak to, I love Johnny Depp. She's a liar. But but what about the law? Ah, forget about the law. I just think she's <laughs> up. So looking at this case objectively, right, here's what I see. I see a 2018 op-ed which doesn't even mention Johnny Depp. As she noted, that is Amber Heard, the only one who thinks it was about Johnny Depp is Johnny Depp. In reading that, I saw Amber Heard, or read with my eyes, thereby yes, seeing, an op-ed in which she talked about women coming of age, women being really out there politically, uh, the fact that you know we're in a society where we have this Me Too movement about herself being a survivor. I didn't see anything about Johnny Depp. I didn't see it. So I don't get the notion that because she writes an op-ed and she happens to be married to him, that, wow, it's about me, I'm gonna sue you. So reason I'm taking it back there, Joshua, is because if this is about defamation, which is a false defamatory statement, which injures your reputation, at least let me get away with something as bad as I can say about Joshua right now. Let me say something as bad as I can, right? The worst I could say is, you know, you know what he you know he dresses amazingly and that's not such a bad thing to say <laughs> so the bottom line is that if it's a false defamatory statement that impaired your reputation where's the defamation here so it's been a, a crazy show with really traded accusations johnny depp she's she's nuts and she drove me crazy and i'm a southern gentleman and i would never hit anybody and her talking about different things but if you boil it down just to the facts, just to the evidence, just
to the legal standards, no matter what the cross-examination was of her and the timeline and the lie. And did you use makeup concealer? Did he hit you? Did he not? Did you hit him first? Did he throw a phone at you? Did you break his finger or cut his finger off? Did he cut it off himself? Did he draw things in blood? Did the ba- I mean, did the butcher do it? The baker, the candlestick maker? Did the police officer come in and did they take a report? Did they? Not? I mean, after all is said and done, it comes down to, was the Post article in any way the op-ed defamatory? And you know what, Joshua? I just don't see it. And that's my issue here. And so at the end of the day, I think he loses and I think she loses, too, uh, you know, with respect to her counterclaim. So it's a wash, but it's been an interesting show, a sad show. And boy, I would never want anything to get out there, uh, you know, of such a personal nature. That's just it's just such a crazy thing to watch. Yeah, it, it is crazy. It's become this cultural phenomenon that, you know, we're, we're all just sitting on the edge of our seat and eating popcorn. And I think you're totally right. Everyone has completely lost sight, other than professionals like yourself who understand the law, of what this is all about. I mean, you, you look on Twitter, you look on the Internet, and everybody's going, you know, if they're on Team Depp, it's not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. It's not about him being not guilty or guilty. This is a civil case. It's about defamation. It's a preponderance of the evidence standard. It's entirely different from every what everybody thinks it's about. But you begin to wonder, are the jurors going to understand that? Are, are they going to sit there and go, no, I don't think he did it. And that's enough for them to find in his favor. I tend to agree with you. And I know a lot of people are not uh, big fans of that opinion. But I tend to agree with you that if you're looking just at this, these cross-complaint defamation suits, I think they both lose. I don't know if either one of them have met their burden. Putting that all aside, um, it, it, her sister's testimony, um, to me, I don't think that her did did all that great. I think she had a couple of good moments. I think she, on cross, she had some difficulty. But I really wonder about that sister. Um, she testified to having a eyewitness actual abuse. Is that, in your opinion, too big of a hill for Depp's team to get over, that now there's this other person, no one else had witnessed this, now they have another person who's witnessed it. You you know what, Joshua, so to me, you know, the family member issue is critical because, you know, family has inherent bias, right? Yeah. It's like one family member lies to it, another family member swears to it, right? The fact is, is family, you're gonna back family. The difference here, though, with her sister and the difference here with the day she had in court the other day is that there's so much corroboration. You have a makeup artist that said, you know what, she looked pretty bruised up to me and I used extra concealer. You had the guy that was the couple's friend who was over the house the day the police came and he says, you know what, the cops came, they saw things broken around, they saw her looking, you know, not terrible, but she was bruised and they said, hey, should we move forward? That differed, of course, from what the cops said, right? You had the sister who testified about what what we just talked about with respect to her seeing an actual uh, events that occurred. You have all of these text messages that are out there concerning his bad behavior. You have these surreptitiously taped things that they were saying nasty things to each other. You have surveillance with him slamming things saying, you want a beating, you want this, you want whatever he was saying. So all of this is corroboration. And so I don't know the extent to which there was any you know major abuse or was he beating or not or was he maybe saying things he shouldn't have said but 
someone in her position, do you think she might have felt maybe a little disrespected? Do you think she might have felt abuse in some form or fashion? And if the answer to that question is, well, probably, how does he win this case? So that's what I see. So I just think on balance, all of the witnesses who testified on her behalf gave some measure of corroboration to what she said. And I think that smells trouble, really smells and spells trouble (laughs) for really, you know, Depp's point of view. That's all. Okay. One last question I have for you on this on this particular issue about the witnesses and the strength of the cases is something that I I haven't heard a lot of people talking about. But this the, the, the big incident comes down to this staircase incident. There's there's alleged you know, that he had punched her several times on the, the mezzanine of this stairway in their, their penthouse home. There have been four witnesses who, who had, had testified to, to that event. Amber Heard said she was punched. Johnny Depp said he never laid a finger on her. The sister says that Amber Heard got punched. And a bodyguard, not a, not a relative to anybody there, doesn't testify about anything but Amber Heard hitting Johnny. So if you're keeping track of the score here, there are now four people, including Heard herself, who admitted to laying hands on Johnny, but only two people, Heard and her sister, with that family relation, who says that he actually touched her. That changed your thoughts at all? So here's why that's important, and then here's why it's unimportant, right? It's Love important it. because you as a juror, right, if you're a juror, you'll be given an instruction that you can disregard all of a witness's testimony if you think they're lying about something, or you can just disregard the part they're lying about and accept the other part, right? So will the jury yeah. just disregard everything and say you're a liar? The reason, so that, in that way, it may be important. Here's why it's unimportant. This is not a criminal case, right, that you and I are used to where you're talking about counts of an indictment and every particular instant in the indictment with respect to the count has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So we got 20 counts and you got to prove them all. The issue is, am I a domestic abuse survivor? Does that mean if the staircase didn't happen that some on some other instance that he didn't throw a phone at her? Is that not abuse? The fact that I call you whore and everything else that was said, is that not kind of emotional abuse? The fact that you weren't bruised on some other occasion, is that not abuse? So you don't have to establish every single thing that you say that he did. But is it enough? that enough of the things you say lead a jury to say, this is a tumultuous relationship. I don't know what's going on there, but ma'am, I think you felt abused in some way. And therefore, I don't think you were lying when you wrote that op-ed piece. And if it comes down to that, I think the case just goes away. But as sadly as it's stated, Joshua, it's been very interesting theater. uh, And so it's really captivated the public. But I just think at the end of the day, the cases go nowhere. (laughs) Um, All right. Last point on this. There is talk that Depp's team may put him back on the stand. What are your thoughts on that being a good idea or not? He he, 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 by at least public opinion seemed to have held up pretty well the first time around. Are they risking danger and a backfire if they put him back on or do you think they need him to testify again to clean some of this up? I think, you know what, I think kind of everybody has seen what has happened. I know there's this notion that you got to get the last word. And, you know, he's, <laughs> a, you know, he's a star. He handles himself well, although he was savaged on cross-examination, in my view, told a great narrative on direct, but couldn't answer the text messages, couldn't answer a lot of, you know, things and statements that he made. 
I just think kind of enough is enough. And so not only do you risk from a public relations perspective, the fiasco of you exposing yourself to really getting shredded again, because there's direct examination if you testify, but there's also that thing that you and I love, Joshua, which is cross-examination. Exactly. Right? And so exactly. You get, can you get savage with cross-examination there? So that's the one big risk, right? And it's just, the fact is, is I just think that everyone kind of has heard, seen, and it's kind of enough. And what else are you going to say, really, at this right. stage that is going to move the needle one way or the other? So I would just kind of take my lumps, keep it moving. Um, but he probably feels differently. So I won't be surprised if we hear right. from him again. Right. And from reports uh, inside the courtroom, it, it sounds like juror fatigue has begun to set in. But if I know one thing about celebrity clients, I know that they, the way they feel they can fix a problem is just put them in front of a microphone. So I wouldn't doubt that we might be hearing from him again. Uh, Joey, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, just Google my name and the good, the bad and the ugly will come up about <laughs> me. And, um, you know, it's all good. So just Google Joey Jackson and there's a whole bunch of sites, my firm, you know, the my media stuff, everything else will come up. And I hope what comes up first and foremost is this podcast that I had the pleasure of doing with you. Josh. Uh, so thank fantastic. You thank you, sir. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our Sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thanks for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.